Thanks, Crossroads. That was awesome to see you guys again. Thanks for putting those pictures together. Um, it's great. It brings joy to our hearts today to just see each other and glad to be worshiping together, even though we're not together in the same room we are together. And I realized this morning, given the circumstances and this Easter like no other that probably any of us have ever experienced, that I'm speaking to more than just the body of Crossroads this morning. And I'm thankful that in these weeks of, of doing our, our live feed, we've had a number of people join us from a lot of different places. And so I realized this morning I'm not just speaking to us crossroads, but I'm speaking to many people who are fearful and isolated, some who are frustrated and despairing. I'm speaking to the helpless and the hopeless, to some sick and dying, to cynics to doubters, to the religious from every and any faith persuasion, to atheists and agnostics, to scientists and philosophers, to workers and nurturers. And so I want to say to all of you this morning, if I could prove to you without any doubt that the man Jesus who was crucified and buried under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in the first century actually physically rose from the dead, would that alter your perspective, change your outlook, and transform your heart? Of course it would. It would change everything. If a human being, a man, actually rose from the dead, everything is different for everyone for all time. Now, I can't do that this morning. I can't prove to you intellectually with enough evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm not going to try to do that. What I do want to start off with this morning is to show you that proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ as historical reality is what the early church leaders did in the first 20, 30 years of the church. They were obsessed with proclaiming the resurrection. Nothing else seemed to matter to the leaders of the early church. And rightly so, because if the resurrection of Christ is true, everything is different. It changes everything for everyone then and now. And so in the first years of Christianity, what was preached was not doctrine about baptism or sanctification or the organization of the church or future things. There was very little instruction about prayer or worship or the sacraments. No one taught about the authority, infallibility, inerrancy, or perspicuity of Scripture. What the apostles first preached was one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was the game changer. It started all the way back at the empty tomb. Matthew 28, 5 through 7. Now this morning I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, and you're not going to probably be able to keep up as you leaf through your Bible. So I encourage you to write these references down. Matthew 28, 5 through 7. The women went to the tomb to anoint the body of the Lord or to just honor him. And the text says in Matthew 28 that the angel met them there, and the angel said, Do not be afraid. Know that we know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. The angel was the first to proclaim the resurrection. And then he said, Go and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. 
And so the message of the resurrection began. You know some of the other narratives of Easter Sunday morning. And then later, after Jesus had actually ascended, the apostles of the original 12, there's only 11 left because Judas had taken his own life. And they realized their call was to preach the resurrection. So they said in Acts chapter 1, we got to find somebody to take Judas's place. And so in Acts chapter 1, I think we can advance there. Can we do that, you guys? <laughs> Maybe not. In Acts chapter 1, the uh, 11 disciples decided we have to replace Judas. And so in verse 21, they say it was necessary to choose one of the men who'd been with them the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst them. And so they said one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They knew that that was their call, to preach, to proclaim the resurrection. Then in Acts chapter 2, this was really Peter's first sermon that he preached. And the whole emphasis of his sermon in Acts chapter 2 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see it in verse 24. Peter declares, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then down in verse 31, he mentions it again, and he speaks of David, who we've been studying. David, long ago, speaking ahead of the resurrection of the Messiah. And Peter says in verse 31 of this same sermon, seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Then in chapter 3 of Acts, we have Peter and John heal through the power of Jesus a lame man. And then Peter kind of gives this impromptu sermon. In verse 15 of that sermon, he says to the Jewish leaders, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Even the Jewish leaders in chapter 4, verse 2 of Acts, says these Jewish resistant leaders were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It was all about the resurrection in the early decades of the church. The apostles were eventually imprisoned for this. Peter and John were put in prison the church prayed for them, and upon their release in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, after they were just released, the text says, with great power, these apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was all about the resurrection. In Acts 17, Paul gathered with a bunch of intellectuals in the Areopagus at Athens, and he preached about the resurrection of Jesus. They were obsessed with it, and why not? It changed everything. I'm going to skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul now, as he's teaching the Corinthians a little later in the first century, still accentuates the resurrection and speaks of how it is central to our faith. First of all, he gives evidence of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that on the third day was raised, according to the Scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, 
Then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then Paul goes on and interprets this resurrection and shows how central it is. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The centrality of the resurrection. It's everything for our faith. Paul says more than that. If Christ was not raised, then we are found to be false witnesses. But he says in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This is what the apostles proclaimed in the first century. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because it changes everything. And now church this morning, I want to encourage you, not only did the resurrection change everything then, it changes everything for us now, today, even in this context of isolation, social distancing, and the threat of global pandemic. I want to show you that from 1 Peter, Peter's letter to the church kind of scattered. I'm going to share with you a text this morning and going to kind of give you a list of why the resurrection matters and how the resurrection changes everything for us, even now. Not just our eternal future, but today, right now, in this context, changes everything. Peter spoke eloquently of the resurrection in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. Here it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then this sentence, this long sentence continues with a list of many things that's ours because of the resurrection. It's into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade for us. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, right now, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And I want to talk for the next few minutes about what is ours right now. What can be ours if you're not a person of faith? What is ours as if you are a person of faith right now? When we really believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the historical reality of the resurrection, it didn't just change everything for the church in the first century. And by the way, I think it's the power of the resurrection that helped the church endure through persecution, through suffering, rejection, yes, plague, even in the first century. It was the resurrection that lifted them above the trials of the first century and enabled them to endure and so the church is sustained even to this day. What is ours right now because of this resurrection according to Peter? First thing Peter says in verse 3, it's new birth. New birth. 
Paul taught us that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has been raised, then everybody who believes in him will be raised. He is the first fruits of those who believe in him and who will be raised. That resurrection starts with new birth right now in this world. We can be new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can trust in him, and we too can have new life that starts right now. People of faith are new creations in Christ. Secondly, Peter says we have a living hope. We have a living hope. When the scripture uses this word hope, it means a confident expectation. So we have this living expectation of incredible things now and in the future. Peter says this in verse 3. Paul said it this way, to live is Christ. I think Peter would affirm that. Peter's saying we have this living hope right now. For us to live is Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ. And so Paul said in Galatians 2.20, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the living hope we have, the living hope of new birth. We are new creations. The life of Christ brings to life our souls. Thirdly, then, Peter talks about this inheritance that we receive that's already ours in heaven. Verse 4, he says, because of the resurrection, we have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So what I want to say by way of number three is we have this untainted inheritance secured in heaven. It's there for us. It's already there. Our inheritance is already set. That's why Paul said in the second half of that verse where he said to live is Christ, by the way, that's from Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain because he gains the inheritance. This is the hope that we have, church, right now. For us to live is Christ. He lifts us above the trials of this world. To die, it just gets better. It's gain. It's gain. Because to be absent from this body is to be present in fullness with the Lord Jesus in our inheritance in heaven. Peter adds to this list in verse 5. He says we are shielded by God's power. He says it's through our faith in this resurrection that we're shielded by God's power. How encouraging to know right now, church, in this season that we are shielded by the power of God. There's so many applications of that. I'm not going to take the time to unpack that completely. But just know in this season of anxiety, worry, concern, you are shielded by God's power, believer in Christ. What an awesome gain we have, blessing we have right now to be shielded by His power. And then number five on our list comes from verse six. It is so relevant to our season right now. We're going to call that joy during trials. And I want to explain that to you. I use the word chose the, the word during very careful. It's joy during trial. Verse 6 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The in all this refers to what we have because of the resurrection. So we don't find joy in the trial. 
but in our salvation, in the resurrection of Jesus. We don't find joy because of the trial. Trials are bad. We don't find joy in or because of trials. We find joy in our salvation because of the resurrection of Christ. We don't even find joy in spite of a trial. It's not like we deny it and we just say, oh, there's a trial, but I'm good, I'm good. No, we find joy during the season of the trial and the hardship. So relevant for us today. And praise God, none of us at Crossroads, to my knowledge, have been sick. We've had our usual colds and, and things happen, but no one has got this virus yet that we know of. Praise God for that. So we are not suffering as much of the world is suffering, but yes, we're experiencing hardship and a trial, but we can have joy during this season, during this season of hardship. The other New Testament authors affirm this, really, in so many places. In James chapter 1, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, and there's the idea of during the trial again, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. This is one of the reasons we can have joy during the trial, because God does good things in us, believers in Jesus, during this season of trial. He's developing perseverance in our faith. He is strengthening our faith right now in the midst of this hardship and trial. That's one of the reasons we can rejoice as we endure and go through seasons such as this. God's doing a good thing in us. During this trial, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul describes it this way in verse 16. He says, We do not lose heart right now, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That's happening, believer in Christ. God nurtures your faith. He renews it day by day. For right now, Paul says, verse 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them because our faith is being nurtured in this season of light and momentary trouble. So he goes on to say, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the hardship around us, but on what is unseen, our resurrected Lord Jesus. And then, Paul talks in Romans 8 about the brokenness of our world and how even creation is fallen and broken and how the creation itself longs for the children of God to be redeemed. And he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No trial, no hardship. So we can have joy, church, even during the trial. These scriptures, and really the whole of the New Testament, present an amazing perspective on suffering, trial, and hardship. I just want to take a few more minutes and explain some things here that I think are so important for us to understand during this season of global pandemic and the hardship that we're facing that's much worse than many other places in our country, urban areas, and around the world. God does a good thing in His people through hardship. I had a seminary professor, I've used this before with you, and I think we're going to have this little formula on your screen. A professor who said, if you could write a formula for Christian growth, and you can't, so be assured of that, There's, it's not formulaic, 
But if you could, if you attempted to write a formula for Christian growth, you'd have things like the Bible and the Holy Spirit. You'd include prayer, worship, fellowship, service, obedience. He said one of the things you'd have to have on the left side of the equation, if it's going to equal spiritual maturity on the right side of the equation, is suffering, hardship, trial. What he was trying to say was there's certain things that God will develop in us, in our faith and in our character, that only come through hardship. That's why we can rejoice in this current season of trial. John Piper said it this way. Suffering fits into God's design in ways that sometimes baffle us and test us to the limit. Let me pause in that quote. Now's one of those times. <laughs> Whatever we're experiencing, I believe, is a part of God's grand design. I'm not saying he necessarily even caused this. Hang on. Don't, don't go to that question yet. We'll get there. Sometimes God's design baffles us. tests us to the limit, leaves us scratching our head, leaves us asking the question, God, why? Baffling. This is one of those times. But Piper goes on to say, this very baffling in testing is part of the design. That's part of what God is doing through this trial in us. He's developing, building, nurturing our faith. Now, let me go ahead and ask that question some of you have already been asking. Does God therefore ordain hardship and suffering, particularly for his church? And by the word I ordain, I mean does he direct it? Does he command it? Does he call for it? Did God call for this global pandemic of the coronavirus? Let me answer it this way and in a way that maybe you're not going to like so much. But let me say it this way. Does God ordain these kind of things? He can. Has the power to. Nothing is out of his reach. Can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. Secondly, he has in the past. Read the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, God brought brought curse and plight and plagues. Ask the Egyptians, ten of them. He did this to discipline his own people. He brought evil empires against them. He used wicked rulers to discipline and build and nurture his own people. Baffling, isn't it? So God can, and he has in the past, and I would suggest to you he certainly will in the future. I think it was just a year ago we preached through Revelation. And as we get nearer to the end of all things in history as we know it, God is certainly going to bring hardship on this planet. It will be directly from his hand. So, first thing we have to say about does God ordain hardship and suffering? He can, he has, he will. Is he now? I don't know. Maybe. Sometimes. We can't always know. But here's what I want to leave you with, church. Whether troubles come into our life because God ordained it or troubles come into our life because the evil one does that or because we live in a broken world or because uh, the consequences of our own sin, however we get into hardship, know that trouble 
is used by God to work good in our lives. However trouble comes to us, God will use it to do good work in our faith and in our lives. We can think of it as discipline. Hebrews 12.10, I just memorized this with a group of men in a discipleship group. Let's see if I can quote it now. Uh, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Now, I'm not saying this global pandemic is an act of God's hand to discipline the globe or his church. Do not quote me and say that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. However we got to this place, not only in this hardship, but in any hardship, however it happens, however we find ourselves in that place, God can use and will use the hardship to strengthen our faith. And so the author to the Hebrews says, consider this as discipline, that God is training you, is nurturing your faith, is building you up. Let me summarize this whole idea of God and hardship and suffering with the words of E.M. Bounds, kind of an obscure pastor, author of about 150 years ago or so. I've used this before, but it's a fairly lengthy quote. Let me read this, and I think we're going to post it later this week for you if you want to to have this. Here's what E.M. Bounds says. He says, trouble is God's servant. Trouble is God's servant. Trouble is under the control of Almighty God and is one of His most efficient agents in fulfilling His purposes in perfecting His saints. Mm. God's hand is in every trouble which breaks into the lives of people. Not that He directly and arbitrarily orders every unpleasant experience of life. Not that He is personally responsible for every painful and afflicting thing which comes into the lives of His people. But church, hear this. No trouble is ever turned loose in this world and comes into the life of saint or sinner, but comes with divine permission and is allowed to exist and do its painful work with God's hand in it or on it carrying out his gracious designs of redemption. Hmm. Most of the time it's really hard to see how God's working in the midst of a hardship. Instead, we just feel baffled. As Piper said, I think there's a lot of baffled feelings happening to us right now, not only here but around the globe. But church, by faith, Know that God is working good in your faith, in your heart, and your life. He is developing you, doing things in you now that couldn't happen any other way except through hardship. Trust in Him. We must trust in that today. Please know that right now God is using COVID-19 for His good. And that's why we can be joyful during the trial. Peter goes on, gives us some other awesome things. I've got I to pick up the pace here a little bit. Number six, Peter talks about in verse seven, he talks about a faith that is refined and strengthened by trials. That's what God's doing in us right now, church. Look what he says in verse seven. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith which is of greater worth than gold, even though gold also perishes when it's 
if it's refined by fire. Peter's saying here, your faith is refined through trial, but it is more valuable than gold, than pure gold that has been refined. Our faith and the faith that will come out of us on the other end of this pandemic church will be richer, deeper, more profound, and of great unequaled value than anything else we have. Our application then is to cooperate with God in this season of hardship. Cooperate with him. He's doing a great work in you, church. And then number seven on our list is my favorite. It also comes from verse seven. Peter says, all this is happening. Your faith is being refined through these trials. Why? So that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love that. You know, it's one thing to suffer or to endure hardship or troubled times or whatever label you want to put on what we're dealing with right now. It's one thing to go through that ourselves and to know that God is enriching our faith. That helps us. But when we know that our faith is strengthened and is refined as gold in the fire, when we know that that faith compels praise, glory, and honor to Jesus, that just motivates me to want to endure a lot of stuff, doesn't it, you church? If it's going to bring Jesus glory, if it's going to exalt him, if it's going to bring him praise and honor, I'm okay with it. That's my passion, to see Jesus Christ honored in my life. These trials have come. I don't know how they got here. I don't know how we got to this place. But I know that Jesus Christ can be praised, glorified, and honored when we endure and when we allow the Spirit of God to nurture our faith and grow us through this hard time. Because when we not only endure or hang on through trial and hardship, but grow and mature through that trial, it is a smackdown to the evil one who I believe also has a hand in hardship. Hmm. Crossroads evil doesn't originate with God. He just uses it for his purposes. Be assured of that. And then Peter goes on in verse 8 and says this joy we can have in the midst of trials. He uses this little adjective, it can be inexpressible. Isn't that cool? He says in verse 8, you, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Have you felt that yet during this season? You, 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 you don't know how to talk about it. And people think you're crazy, kind of. But that's the joy that we have because Jesus was raised. You see, we're not a prisoner, church. We're not a prisoner to this trial. We're not a prisoner to a global pandemic. The resurrection of Christ lifts us above it as it lifts us above all things. Jesus is raised to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so the last thing Peter says on his list again is a summary, he talks about our salvation of our souls both now and forever in verse 9. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now church, this list from 1 Peter are the things that characterized the first century church and got it through all the trials, the hardships of the first century it was true of the church then. It's true of the church today. These things are ours in Christ because he was raised from the dead. The resurrection changes everything. Not just for eternity, but now. Now, church. Everything's different now because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why the early church proclaimed it. 
That's why we still celebrate on Easter morning the resurrection because everything changes because Jesus rose. In Peter's very first sermon, I referenced it earlier all the way back in Acts chapter 2, when his listeners grasped this, when they understood that, the resur- that Jesus did physically, historically raised from the dead. It's historical reality. When they realized that, they said to Peter, verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart. The truth of the resurrection cut them to the heart. And they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. To repent means to think differently. Oh, how we need to do that. We don't have to think like the rest of the world thinks about this pandemic, church, because Jesus is raised. Jesus lifts us above this. We can think differently. When we turn back to him and we get Jesus in focus, he will lift us above this, even though it's hard, even though it's inconvenient, even though it's difficult, even though we're anxious, even though we're worried about friends and loved ones. Jesus rose from the dead. And he will lift us above this. And he will do good things in us during this. And this will be for his own glory. Believer in Christ. Be excited about the resurrection today. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you're one of those cynics or skeptics or atheists, you've got to answer the question that was proclaimed so freely and often in the first century. The historical reality of the resurrection. You've got to do something with that question. I encourage you to embrace it by faith, to trust the Lord, to experience the goodness of His gifts. I'll close with this. John Bunyan, great believer, committed man, author who wrote the classic work Pilgrim's Progress back in the 1600s. If you've never read that, you should. Now be careful, it's kind of 1600s King James English. But you can actually buy children's versions of Pilgrim's Progress, which is awesome. Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years because of his beliefs. Yeah, and band, you guys can come back up. I'm about to wrap up here. He was in prison for 12 years because of his faith. He experienced persecution, not just hardship of sickness, not just isolation, but imprisoned isolation. Persecuted for his faith for 12 years. And yet he had this to say, and I believe he said this because of his hope of the resurrection. John Bunyan said, Our sufferings are ordered and disposed by God that you might always, when you come into trouble for this name, not stagger nor be at a loss. Let me pause there. It's so important, church, right now, that we not stagger or feel that we're at loss. But Bunyan goes on and he says, But to be stayed, composed, and settled in your minds and say, the will of the Lord be done. Oh, church, we have such reason to say this today. We can be settled. We can be stayed. We can be composed because Jesus rose from the dead, and we know that the will of the Lord is being done. God is not wasting this difficult season. He's using it mightily in His church to build our faith, which will be for the praise and honor and glory of His name. 
Let's celebrate that as we worship together. Amen.